everyone. My name is Maria Thomas, and I work for Allianz Research, the global team of economists, strategists, sector advisors, and foresight experts of the Allianz Group, led by Ludovic Subron. Welcome to Tomorrow, a podcast where we'll be talking about our latest analyses of economic and capital market developments, as well as our views on trends affecting risk management. Let's get started. It has now been just over a year since the war broke out in Ukraine, sending shockwaves throughout the global economy. In this episode, we speak to Ludovic Subron, Chief Economist at Allianz, and Eric Bartelon, Head of Capital Markets Research, to find out how war economics is playing out. Hello, Ludovic and Eric. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Maria. Hi, Maria. So it's now been a year since the war broke out in Ukraine. So we thought that in this episode, we'll try to understand how war economics has shaped the global economy, companies and markets. Ludovic, can we start with you? Maybe can you explain for our listeners, what exactly do we mean by war economics? Well, you know, I think it, it starts to be extremely clear that when it comes to the, the unfortunate you know, anniversary of the war, the Russian economy is really adapting and turning its economy into a war economy, meaning ramping up military production and adjusting to sanctions, right? But when we saw the impact of the war on our um, uh, side of the world, I remember very clearly Eric sending me an email when we started to talk about rationing. And he says, you know, across history, there are some features uh, that are very common to war economics, I would say. So not necessarily a, an economy that is functioning under war, the way Keynes describes it, but more uh, this idea of reallocation of capital, debt monetization, and to a certain extent, a form of, of, of rationing that are actually a, a, you know, three pillars or three features that are very common um, to understand how an economy can function under war. And so when, when we started to exchange on this as early as, you know, February, March, 2022, it became also very clear that there were some similarities between the war against the virus, the war against Putin, but also maybe tomorrow the war against climate change or the, um, the, the uh, demographic transition, right? The, this idea that we've seen, um, in the past, uh, you know, three years uh, because of the big shocks we've, we went through. Um, more uh, interventionism from governments, more fragmentation, and certainly a form of more inequalities. So somehow the, there is a very narrow definition. Then there are some common features. And then now the question is indeed whether some of these, you know, functioning or new functioning of the economy are changing the the, the, the environment against which um, uh, companies, households, and governments are are functioning. So in the short term, how exactly is war economics playing out? Where do you see the most striking effects? For me, I think the most striking effects are indeed, uh, uh, you know, the return of inflation, uh, the, the choice or not of some policymakers to pay the cost of the war. So, so who finances the war between households, governments, um, you know, companies, and uh, do, do central banks play a role in monetizing debt like they did during COVID or uh, do they not play a role like they just did for the energy inflation shock? Uh, what is the role of the ministries of finance and the public spending? Do we have to go to some form of, of sanctions or, or uh, rationing to make sure that, you know, the, the, this completely, um, you know, uh, this is fully aligned with this idea of war economy? I guess, I guess it's, you know, the, the effects of this are both visible right now through the shock that we went through over the past uh, year, at least, and certainly through through which the, the Russian economy went through, uh, but also going forward, whether we've ended 
a form of period. A lot of people talk about the end of the great moderation, the past 20 years, uh, the, the end of the heyday of globalization, uh, the end maybe of a neoliberal cycle. And so these are questions that don't necessarily have an answer, but some could actually think that this framework through which we, we start thinking about the, the economic development is also uh, something that will help us understand in the future how um, you know agents and policymakers behave. But but maybe Eric has, has more to say to this. Unfortunately, this war is not the first one uh, in history. So we, we, we have learned from previous war a number of stylized facts about wars. And uh, what we are currently witnessing in uh, Ukraine, in Russia and elsewhere, uh, unfortunately fits this pattern. So let me start with the stylized facts, and then I will give a few numbers to illustrate what I mean. As uh, Ljubik already said, uh, the first impact of war is on production. Uh, you need to produce um, goods, um, military goods as opposed to civilian goods. Uh, wars reshuffle trade flows. They provoke inflation because most of the war, most of the time, they are not financed by voluntary savings or taxes, but by uh, public debt monetization. Um, so that that's very broadly uh, defined what we typically see. So now, um, what about Ukraine in regard of this uh, stylized fact? Um, one thing also that I should have mentioned maybe is that typically when it comes to data, economic data during a war, you are in the famous or infamous uh, fog of war. Russia has stopped publishing most of its economic data uh, in early 2022. And for Russia, we have an incomplete picture of the situation. But we know, we know that the trade deficit of Ukraine has uh, doubled. Um, we know that inflation is running at about 25% a year. We know that uh, public debt, uh, as of August, this is the last data point we have, was growing at 30% a year. And we know that uh, the money supply um, in Ukraine is running at about uh, 20 to 30%, depending on which aggregate you look at. Bank lending is growing at 50% a year. And... Uh, as is typically the case when you have this kind of monetary trend, uh, the Ukrainian currency has lost uh, a fifth of its value. So that's uh, what uh, we can uh, uh, quote to illustrate the uh, stylized fact I have started with. So you've explained how the war economy is affecting Ukraine and Russia. What are the main consequences of war economics in the West? Do you see inflation pushing capital to be reallocated towards the war effort, for example? Well, uh, yes. Um, typically, uh, one, what you see when inflation is picking up is that it's an incentive. It, it fosters investment, corporate investment, uh, probably because it inflates uh, nominal profits. Um, we have not seen that yet. Uh, and here we are talking about corporates in the uh, non-belligerent countries. So basically, uh, in our economies. Uh, and this is a little, this is actually quite puzzling because, um, it should have happened already. It has not happened yet. Uh, most probably it's because companies are, um, happy or keen on, uh, hoarding. Uh, money balances uh, rather than spending um, 
the money they are uh, making from their operations, they uh, hoard money balances, they pay out dividend, and they are buying back shares. And they are not investing in capital goods. And I guess, Ludovic, when we talked about this episode, you mentioned that this is going to be something to watch because, you know, the next battlefield is going to be climate change, which is going to require huge investment from the private sector alongside the public sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you think about war economics as a framework for combating climate change as well? Well, first, I think, you know, the, the combat against climate change will require some form of new public-private investments or partnerships. So there will be some form of interventionism. Uh, I think we lack a form of climate diplomacy. So there will be a form of fragmentation and there will be winners and losers. So there will be also, you know, um, policy tools to be developed, part market-oriented, part non-market-oriented, including maybe some form of rationing to make sure that not too many people lose or at least that there are the appropriate safety nets. If I go back to Eric's point about this um, capital allocation and, in, and inflation, I think there is also something very important here. You would think that to uh, to orient properly uh, capital towards the green sector uh, without creating bubbles, but this idea of, of, of making sure that capital flows the right way, a bit of inflation is actually good. Uh, so, so prices should play a discriminatory role today. Uh, the carbon price is at the record high level, but it seems not to be enough. So either because we've zombified too much or because it's not high enough. And so I think um, Eric's research on this, you know, capital misallocation and inflation uh, in the in the past, and and looking especially at what happened in the tech, but also what happened more generally in the US, is very good. Um, you know, can be extrapolated quite well into, you know, what is the right level of inflation we need to make sure that we see uh, uh, determination in investing uh, in the fight against climate change. So, what are the you know, expectation on the return on investment of such, um, uh, you know, capex increases uh, from from companies in uh, being on the net zero pathway, which is the the terminology dedicated to 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 this. You know, and how more generally do we make sure that um, the the policy environment uh, in which you know households and corporates and governments. And, and certainly also policymakers of all, uh, you know, walks of life since you, you heard, you know, central banks wanted to play a role and, and, and of course, climate policies being extremely, uh, important in shaping, you know, the incentives. You know, we, we, everybody's talking these days about the Inflation Reduction Act of the U.S. The question is, how does this play a role in making sure that capital flows to the right uh, sectors, to the right objects, to make sure that we are on a better path when it comes to our carbon emission. Today, unfortunately, I think we fail to see this, and and we we have ten percent inflation, and we have interest rates that went you know from almost zero uh, to to uh, to three percent in one year. So you have a bit of price, you know, triaging. You have a bit of cost of risk triaging, the, the purchasing power of money is very different from it was a year ago. And yet we still struggle to see, you know, investments crowding in uh, to bridge the investment gap for the just transition. And so for me, that's that's quite a paradox. And I think we need to keep that in mind when we think about what, what is coming forward. Because if the private money is not going, we're going to see more taxation, more regulation, and certainly more intervention. Uh, if the capital is not going the right direction, then we're going to see a lot more, uh, you know, fragmentation and a lot more losers than initially assessed, I would say, had the market functioning been working in favor of combating climate change. 
Eric, do you have anything to add? Yeah, one of the reasons um, potentially explaining the paradox that uh, Ludovic was alluding to is the distinction between inflation, which has risen, and inflation expectations, which may not have risen enough to uh, stimulate investment. Uh, we should not forget that we are coming out from a very long period of disinflation uh, and inflation staying at a very low level. Uh, this is what Ludovic called the great moderation. And it's quite possible that in this kind of environment, inflation expectations have become quite sticky and are not responding one for one uh, to the increase in inflation that we have seen. That could be a potential explanation. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us, Ludovic and Eric. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Eric. Thank you so much for listening. You can find the full report we just spoke about on our website. We'll leave a link in the show notes. If you'd like to discover more of our research, you can also follow the Ludonomics newsletter on LinkedIn. We'll leave a link down below for that too. If you like the podcast, please send it to any of your friends who might like it too, and leave us a rating and a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. In the meantime, stay tuned for the next episode.